Hey everybody and welcome back to the Memory Vox, a music podcast where we like to discuss music and life. I am your host Jeremy. Glad to be back with you guys. Um, hope everybody's been doing well over the last uh, couple weeks since my last podcast. Did anybody get a chance to check out uh, the new Demi Lovato album, uh, the Holy F Tour? Um, or the Holy F album, and have you listened to it? And what did you guys think? Or have you been checking out some new-to-you-type music recently? I want to hear about it. Um, I have been uh, kind of getting into an artist by the name of Jelly Roll. Um, And the best way to describe him would be if you mix the DNA of Snoop Dogg and Kid Rock and Willie Nelson... And that is basically what you get with uh, Jelly Roll. His latest album, uh, Ballads of the Broken, has been uh, tremendous. I had an opportunity to see him live. He was one of the openers for Shinedown uh, here in uh, Cedar Rapids recently. And uh, he put on a good show. Um, He's a great time and he's a great follow on social media. Um, He just seems to be enjoying life right now and having a good time. I was really into uh, his song, um, Son of a Sinner, which for me was kind of different because I don't normally listen to country music. It's not usually my kind of thing. And this one is sort of a country sound. Um, He tends to do a little bit of everything. He currently has a a song on the rock charts. He currently has a song on the country charts. And I believe he's done some different uh, work with some different rappers and stuff. So he's pretty eclectic in his work, but... Uh, Son of a Sinner is a great song, um, you know, very country sounding, but I really uh, was digging it, and I, I love the whole album beginning to end. So uh, if you get a chance, uh, definitely check out Ballads of the Broken by uh, Jelly Roll. So as I stated last time on the last podcast, I've been uh, doing a lot of research recently, and um for fun because I enjoy it and also uh, to come up with some ideas for uh, the podcast. And so today's episode is one of the things that I was kind of doing research on both for fun and for the podcast. And uh, I don't know if anybody had a chance to see it, but Netflix recently put out a a mini docuseries uh, on the Woodstock 99. And uh, if you haven't had a chance to see it, um, I, I highly recommend it if you're interested in it. Um, quick synopsis, if, if, if you're not sure or if you don't know the story behind Woodstock 99, that's kind of what I'm going to get in here to today. But essentially, it was a, you know, a reboot, if you will, or they were trying to um, redo the original Woodstock um, in 1999. And all of the things that went wrong with this particular um, festival and uh, basically ended up with you know several people getting hurt and fires and you know just it basically the place where they held um, this concert looked like a war zone when it was all said and done. So over the years afterwards there was always the you know as we like to do the finger pointing and the blame and stuff um, who was responsible? How did it go wrong? How did it go so wrong? Uh, what was at the root of, of the most of the problems? 
And uh, I'm going to give you kind of a little breakdown based off of the both, you know, the Netflix docuseries, if you haven't seen it. But I'm also going to give you some of my opinions and kind of what I was able to take from the docuseries. Um, I mean, I remember this particular festival. I remember kind of keeping track of it as it was going on um, through MTV at the time because, you know, they were still doing stuff like that and watching it fall apart like it was. Um, you know, it basically made the Fry Fest, you know, back in the early 2000, whatever it was, uh, look like, I mean, made it look petty considered. So, um, so yeah, let's get into it a little bit. Let's talk about this. So when somebody says the word Woodstock to you, I'm sure that your first, um, you know, thought or the first vision that pops in your head is the hippie loving uh, love not war sex drugs and all that stuff that happened in 1969 uh, what most people don't realize is that one particular gentleman was responsible for putting that together and his name was Michael Lang um, and you know he just was trying to have a peaceful you know protest but day, you know several days of music um, you had you know Lots of different artists that were coming to perform. And it, I don't have to explain too much of it to you because I'm sure if you're a music fan and listening to this, you're well aware of the original Woodstock and the hippies and the peace and love and all that. So we fast forward a little bit and Michael has decided he would like to uh, revisit Woodstock again and try it another time. So we fast forward a little bit to 1994 and he has this idea to try to do what would have then been the 25-year, um, you know, anniversary of Woodstock. And so they try to hold this festival, and unfortunately, it goes south pretty quickly. It um, doesn't really take off. It rains the entire time in the New York area. Um, it just never quite came together. It couldn't get bands together. Sort of a small nightmare. Wasn't totally you know unsuccessful but it wasn't successful at the same time so so not being satisfied with how 94 turned out kind of you know dudding out especially due to the rain um, Michael decides you know I want to give this one more chance 94 didn't really turn out so in 1999 you have the new millennium coming up um, you have you know a lot of kind of gun violence is starting at this point so they want to send or have a platform to you know have these musicians come out and the platform being uh, against school violence and violence and gun violence so because at this time Columbine had happened and you're starting to see a lot more school shootings and stuff so he wants to put together another festival um, another Woodstock festival in 99 after 94 and he's in his head he's picturing of course you know the 1969 Woodstock now so this one doesn't you know fiddle out or fizzle out excuse me like the 94 one does he decides he needs a backer he needs a financial backer um, they need to put some money into this they really need to put some time into this so he reaches out to uh, somebody by the name of John Schur um, who was a successful, um, you know, New York uh, stock person, got a lot of money, running a CEO of a company, um, to back this idea. Um, 
So they get together and they're like, great, we've got the money. And that's, to be completely honest, the immediate point that this goes south. Hiring John for to work with as a promoter and backing this festival with money, in my opinion, is what was the root of the problem when it came to Woodstock 99. Now, most people um, through history wanted to pick out Fred Durst and Limp Biscuit for being the cause of all the problems in Woodstock 99. And I'm going to get into some of that part in just a moment. But really where things start to go south is when you started to put money into this because the original Woodstock was just thrown together. People just showed up. There was no money involved. People were sharing food. Vendors were coming out. The whole nine yards. Well, now everything, much like today, had to make money. You couldn't put on this big festival without making money. So the first thing that they have to do is figure out where are they going to hold this. So they end up finding an old um, Air Force base near Woodstock in Grimes, New York. And so they basically take over this old Air Force facility um, that had been closed down to host the festival. So you have your venue. You know where you're going to have it at. And the mayor of this little tiny town is extremely ecstatic because since the Air Force base was foreclosed by the Clinton administration, now he's going to have some people coming to town spending some money. It revitalizes the town. It energizes them, and they're excited. You have jobs that are coming even for just a weekend, money coming into the city. Great. Now, to put together a festival like this, if any of you have been to, say, Lollapalooza or really any concert, you've got to have all the essentials. You have to have places for the people to sleep. You have to have the artist. You have to have food. You have to have concessions. Excuse me, not just, I mean, concessions and food are the same thing. You have to have merchandise and stuff. The problem was John and Michael didn't want to rely on the people and the fans and smaller people to come in and take care of all of these needs. Excuse me. They hired it out to a corporate a corporate company who was in charge of taking uh, you know taking responsibility for all of this. Well, the problem that you have with that is that when you get a big giant corporation and it, it was you know, I can't remember if it was Coke or Pepsi in this case, who's kind of fitting the bill for this. Well, they want their money. So now you have the issue of these corporate-backed um, concessions, food, and all that, charging uh, a astronomical prices for their stuff. And you have all of you have about two hundred thousand people in this little tiny Air Force base with nothing to, I mean, you're, you're out in the middle of nowhere. And so you need to have food, you need to have water, you need to have all these things. And you don't have a choice but to pay these, these fees that these people are paying. You're talking like $10 for water. It's one of the hottest days of the year. And these kind of things and these little tidbits as the festival is going on, is what's going to start to enrage all of these 
young adults, and, and this is kind of part two of where things kind of go wrong, you have, I don't know if it's considered the millennial generation, it would have been kind of actually maybe my generation, thinking about it, you have your younger kids, because there were some kids that were you know very young, because parents probably didn't realize they were there, and they were being interviewed on this at the age of 14, all the way up to like 25. We have your hormonal young adults that just want to go have a good time. And, you know, they're trying to make the best of the situation. They don't have a lot of money, but they don't have a choice to pay all of these things because they're out in the middle of, you know, the middle of New York. So, which brings us to the next um, basic, uh, we'll refer to all these as sparks Uh that are about to set a place on fire, quite literally. Um, This younger generation, they want to do two things. Well, three things. And you're out in the middle of nowhere. You're away from your parents, most likely. You have no responsibilities. You know, you're in control of your life, essentially. What are the three things you want to do? You want to drink? You want to do drugs? Or smoke? And you want to have sex. And these three things become very volatile over the course of three days. And mind again, they're three of the hottest days in this town's history at the time. So then you have the last little spark, which is John and Michael, I think, had the idea at least that If you're going to have this generation of kids come out to see a show for three days, then you got to find the bands that are on top of the charts right now. The problem was, this is the peak of what is the pop, rock, punk, rap, you know, energy, angry rock music. So you put together a festival of essentially... Every mosh pit, general admission, uh, machismo, hormonal rock and roll artists, which personally I enjoy some of these artists, but we're talking Rage Against the Machine, Limp Biscuit, Red Hot Chili Peppers, any rock and roll band, rappers like, you know, or bands like Offspring, you have rappers like Ice Cube out there. You have artists whose main focus is screw the authorities, screw the government, be pissed off with us. So now you have all these little sparks, and you have a lot of very drunk or high and pretty much just um, badly influenced youths um, on three of the hottest days out in New York, no places to sleep, not enough people to run this particular venue because they didn't have all of the volunteers that they needed. They were basically hiring volunteer security workers from just boroughs of the street of New York paying them out of their pocket cash saying, hey, you 18-year-old kid who's never done anything in your life, 
come be a security guard for 200,000 people. So now you mix all these nice little sparks together with your money and lack of it. You have hot, tired people. You have drugs. You have drinking. You have sex. And you have angry rock. And you put all that together and you mix it all together. And in true and quite literal fashion, it causes a great explosion after three days. Day one goes okay. People are having a great time. They're enjoying some of the shows. You kind of get maybe a little bit of sleep. But the next day, there's not enough water. The lines are out the door. You know, well, not, I mean, you're outdoors. Are, the lines are forever long just to get food. They're charging you an arm and a leg. The porta potties, the lines are out the you know door quite literally. They're not being serviced because the the company that services them doesn't have enough people or security to get in to empty the porta potties. They're running out of everything you could possibly think of. So day two is when you start to see that little bit of change, and these young people who don't know, you know, kind of how to control themselves, or maybe they could have left. But why would you do it? They paid a lot of money to be here. So that's when things start to change. You start to get a little bit of blowback from, you know, these people in the crowds and the 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 temperatures rise and you're you're you know you're starting to get angry because you're hot and tired but you're having a good time and you have these crazy bands that are out here basically firing you up and trying to get you to dance and have a good time which of course brings us to where shit got goes wrong basically and here's where the shit hit the fan day two limp biscuit is the headliner of the day for those of you who don't know limp biscuit you have fred durst you have songs like break stuff nookie very fast-paced very angry very crazy music great stuff if you're a fan and i am anyways so it's the end of the day very hot day it's not a lot of water not a lot's going on um, people are tired but still trying to enjoy themselves um, you know, tensions are rising a little bit. And security really doesn't have a grasp on this. There's 200,000 um, fans and probably, we'll say, 200 security. And you have a general admission concert. And if any of you guys have ever been to a general admission concert, shit gets crazy in those pits. Um, so it's really hard to control everything. Well, you have, and this is where Fred Durst and Limp Bizkit get the blame, and I, I guess I sort of see it, but it's not their fault. They're the artists. Their job is to come out and do this. They play for you. They want to get you excited. They want to get you amped up. This is their show. So they come out, they do their show, and it gets crazy. And literally, people are climbing the rafters of the uh, towers in the back where um, – Things like MTV and E are filming um, this whole performance. The crowds are getting crazy. You know, the mosh pits getting crazy. Fights are breaking out. And security really can't do much about it. So now as an artist, do they owe it to the venue to settle the crowd? My argument would be yes, probably a little bit. Because Fred is seeing all of this go down. 
He's seeing some of the the fights. He's seeing these people get a little out of control. He has the opportunity to maybe settle the crowd a little bit and sadly doesn't do it. And luckily, you know, they get through their set. There's not too much damage, but the tides have turned and the crowds are definitely not happy. And again, you would ask yourself, why just stay through it? Well, I guess because you spent like $400 a ticket uh, to stay out there for three days and they keep promising you all of these different bands and, and, you know, uh, memories that you're going to have. And day three is still around the corner and day three is going to be the best day. So that's why you do it. Okay, so let's try to make this long story a little bit shorter here. So day two ends and not without controversy. Limp Biscuit got the crowd stirred up. Shit got real. Probably could have shut it down then. Didn't really think to do so. Instead, everybody goes to the hangar where, by the way, this is, I mean, a small portion of what's going on, are all-night raves going on in this hangar. So, you know, a large portion of the crowd goes over to these hangars where the raves are happening because, one, it's air-conditioned, and two, again, what are they there for? Drinking and drugs and sex. And that's what you're going to find at the rave, right? So you have this all-night rave going. And the beginning of day three, you know it's volatile. Now, Michael and John, who, in my opinion, are the reason and are the blame for this, and money, essentially, greed, um, they are trying to write this off as if just a handful of people are causing problems. But when you watch the documentary, you're going to see it's everybody. And they're all pissed. And the entire crowds are pissed. But they are trying to basically cover their asses and not get sued. And so they're blowing everything off. Girls are getting sexually assaulted and raped. Um, people are having to go to the hospital for heat stroke. Um you know, and the ambulances can't keep up. There's not enough EMTs in the area to, you know, give, um, you know, uh, IVs and the necessary um, triage in order to take care of all the fans. Because there's just, again, there's like 200,000 people and your crew and the people running the show is maybe, maybe less than a thousand people. Now, Michael and John have decided for day three to finish that not only are they going to tout and start talking about after the Red Hot Chili Peppers, who are going to close the show, are going to close day three, close the whole festival, that they have a surprise for everybody. So now the fans that are still there who haven't gone to the hospital, who haven't given up, who can kind of remember what the hell is going on still well over 150,000 people they want to know and if you listen to a lot of the interviews and read some of the interviews most of them are just like you know I paid this money and I've gone this far why am I going to quit now okay I guess I, I get that I respect that I suppose so you get to the end of day three there's no food there's no water hardly it's 100 degrees on this black top out in the middle of New York. 
no shade, everybody's hot, everybody's tired, but they want to see what's going on. They get through the most of the day three, not too many problems. You have some fights, you have some security issues, but security has given up. These, you know, security for hire 18 year old boys and girls, they don't give a fuck anymore. They got their money, day three is in the books, so whatever happens, happens in their mind. So in come the chili peppers. Chili peppers put on their set, and if you've ever seen the Chili Peppers live, which I haven't, but I've seen like some videos, they're crazy. They're putting on a show, they're having a great time, they're firing up the crowd, and the crowd starts to turn a little bit. Now, again, is it in the best interests of the band to settle the crowd and calm them and get them into a better spot? Or do they just do their show? Well, they try to do their show, and the promoters finally cut it, cut the show. They say, okay, stop. We're going to let everybody cool down. We're going to try to get some water out to everybody. Let's try to get everybody under control. So they pull the peppers off the stage. And after a few minutes, they ask them. They ask um, Anthony Kiedis, go out on the stage before you try to finish your set. Let's try to get the crowd under control. They're throwing things, they're setting um, fires to whatever they can, they're trying to take down the towers, they're tearing apart the stage, they're tearing apart all the fixtures in the area. And Anthony Kiedis, I, I respect him sort of as an artist, but in this particular case I kind of watched and my mouth was agape. He goes, they're not going to listen to me. So he goes out on stage and he and Flea, instead of trying to quiet the crowd, instead of even attempting to ask them to cool down, they instead decide, you know what, let's go ahead and play the song Fire by Jimi Hendrix. And that was it. The crowd lost their shit. They were having way too much fun at this point. Most of them were pissed off. Most of the things were destroyed at this point. And it just gets out of control. Fires are starting everywhere. There's a RV driving through the crowd that somebody stole that was belonged to one of the concession stands. It's 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 completely out of control. There's not enough security. The cops are afraid to come in because they're just a small community. Nobody's called. Um, the Coast Guard or anything because according to John and Michael it's just a handful of people that are causing the problem not actually 150,000 people destroying an entire city um, no so and it's the end of day three what could go wrong we're done right sure well the the final match in the coffin if you will or match to the flame or however you want to look at it the big reveal at the end of the chili pepper set because um, again this was set up to promote a a lack of gun violence and they were trying to send the message that you know we shouldn't have guns in school and you know these school shootings and everything else that message got destroyed before the the festival even started but here we are they want to bring it back around this is what we intended this concert to be about Let's all have a kumbaya moment.
they decided to hand out to a very volatile crowd lit candles. Just process that for a second. You have 150,000 people who are pissed off, who have already destroyed most of the venue, and you give them fire. And you can only imagine what happens from there. Shit gets set ablaze. Buildings are being set on fire. They're rioting. They're fighting. They take over the concession area. They start to raid the tents with all the merchandise. It is out of control. And then, hallelujah, what do you know? The cops finally come in. And it takes most of the night to settle it all down. And finally, they get it under control. But it's literally like a war zone in this particular area. And that, my friends, is Woodstock 99. And to me, it solely is the reputation of Woodstock 69 because we know that that was all about peace and love and understanding. And they had just as many people, and it went off without any problems whatsoever. I could argue that you were also listening to, you know, anti-war songs by artists who are considered soft and not as, you know, crazy and rock and roll. Um, but it also wasn't about money. So this this need to make money off of this thing really put a damper on the message that you were intending it to do. So. So needless to say, Woodstock 99 goes down not as a successful um, protest, if you will, about, you know, supporting kids and schools and gun violence and all that, but as basically one of the biggest riots in that part of the state that you've seen in a long time. So it's really sad. Again, because I feel like it solely is the original Woodstock. And so many things at any point during the three days could have changed the trajectory of that concert. Uh, but nobody wanted to take responsibility. Nobody wanted to um, do what was right for these young adults. And at the end of the day, they all just wanted to make their money. So if anybody ever asks you what went wrong with Woodstock 99, feel free to have your own opinion. Sure, we can blame it on the bands. I, I can see the point of that. And we can blame it on, you know, young um, hormonal uh, teenagers and young adults. Sure, we can blame it on that a little bit too. But ultimately, if you ask my opinion, what really screwed up this show from beginning to end was money and classism because the one thing that was for sure was you had one side of we'll, we'll call it a fence or the stage which was the fans who are hot and tired and broke and paying all this money and getting nothing for it and they have no amenities and you have the other side of the stage where you have rock stars that are being driven in in limos and the owners and the promoters are not actually watching what's going on, counting their money. And that was it at the end of the day.
So that's it. Um, again, this uh, three-part documentary series is on Netflix. I highly recommend you watch it because um, there's so much that I couldn't even put a pin on to explain this. I did the best I could, um, obviously, but there's so much more that I didn't even do service to of how bad this went from beginning to end. So if you want to see basically a train wreck from beginning to end, watch this series. Plus it's a good, it's also a good um, representation of the music industry and the artist at that time. So you do, you get a lot of good music, you get a lot of good um, looks at how the artist handled these situations and what they were going through at the time. So all in all, I give it two thumbs up. Hope you guys get to check it out. That's going to be it for this one. I went pretty long this time. Kind of cool. But this was definitely something that piqued my interest and I was really excited about and I wanted to share it with everybody. So hope you guys all enjoy it. Um, I will see you or well, eh, I will talk to you guys again soon. Um, and uh, like my good friend Ted Lasso says, you all be curious, not judgmental. Thanks, guys.